So this evening, uh, because people, a few people have asked me about ethics and Zen, I will talk about ethics and also about compassion. And yes, because sometimes Zen gives the impression that it's beyond good and bad, it's beyond everything. And uh, sometimes you get the impression if only you could get awakened, then you really could do anything you wanted. <laughs> so I would possibly like to correct a little this view, if I may. Because uh, if we look where uh, the Zen tradition uh, exists, in a way, mainly in uh, China, in Korea, in Japan, also little in Vietnam, but I won't cover that. And what is interesting is that in China and in Korea, the Vinaya, which is a full monastic precept for the monks and the nuns, were transmitted from India, from Sri Lanka, from all these countries. And to this day, you have the full Vinaya. But when the Vinaya went to Japan, quickly it disappeared. <laughs> It was never really taken up there. And also what happened in um, the Zen tradition in China, in Korea, especially in China, in the 5th century arose because all the translation of the ethical text of Buddhism had been translated into Chinese. And it seemed that the Chinese decided to do their own ethical precept. That they got all these different texts and then they kind of in a way thought, what would be relevant to us? You know, what kind of precept do we need, Buddhist, in China? And so they created a text which actually was applicable to both monks and nuns, it's a bit, monks, nuns, and lay people. It's a bit of a mismatch, this kind of text, called the Brahmajala Sutta, which is a 58 Bodhisattva precept. And in a way, the similar thing happened as with the Vinaya, that the Bodhisattva precept was in China, went to Korea, remained there, and then the Bodhisattva precept went to Japan, and quickly they became, instead of 58, they became 16. So uh, there is always, I think, an ambivalent relationship with ethics in Japan due to, I think, <laughs> cultural tradition, I don't know. There, there is a kind of a, a, kind of a different uh, subject. But if I can talk about the China and Korea, then you find very much uh, this ethical text, the Bodhisattva precept, which I have translated, and which, in a way, that's why I translated the text. Because in Korea, when I was a nun, I would hear this text at least once a month, if not twice a month. It would be recited, generally quite a high speed, but still. And over time, I started to understand it because my Korean became better. And over time, I realized, ah, they do this because of the text. So I could really see that actually the text was not just, just kind of for sure, but the text really made a difference to the way the people behaved. So very much it was an ethical text for them. But what was interesting about this text is that actually the monks and the nuns recited at least once a month, 
And the lay people, they recite it and take the Bodhisattva precept again once a year. And the monks and the nuns join them too. So the text is not seen as you take it once, but it's very much seen as something which helps you in your life. But you might not necessarily achieve all the time. So it's very much seen as an aspiration. It's something you aspire to. It's something that, in a way, is the ground of your life. But at the same time, there is, a, I think, the, the knowledge that, you know, you will fall short a few times. So once a year, it's good to remember what is it we think would be a good idea to do. And so, in a way, personally, I think this is interesting as an ethical text because it's very much about, not about rule and regulation that nearly like cultural rule and regulation, but it's very much actually the root of the text. Most of, a lot of the precepts are actually about developing a compassionate attitude. Because in a way, again and again, this is what comes out. You have a, the title of the precepts, and then there is an explanation of the precept. And again and again they say, this is a duty of a bodhisattva. Someone who aspires to awakening for his own sake, or own sake, but also for the sake of others, has a duty to be compassionate. So in a way, the, the precept sees as a duty to be compassionate. And so in a way, this is, in a way, the, the basis of this text. Again and again, you have various precepts, and they will come back, not to, you do this because it's the right thing to do, but you do this because it is a compassionate thing to do. And also what one finds in, for example, I found this quote by Wonyo, who is a Korean master of the 7th century, and that's what he says in a way about practice and ethics. However well you practice meditation, without moral discipline, you will be like someone who is shown the way to a treasure house but never go there. And this was my experience with my teacher in Korea, Master Kuzan, that he thought that we had to cultivate the three training together of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. That it was, he, he, he said, if you only do one, your practice, your spiritual life will be deficient. In order for it to be stable, to be balanced, in all different ways, you have to cultivate meditation with morality and also with wisdom. That was very much emphasized. And I think that's what Wonyo is saying. You can practice a lot of meditation, but if there is no basis in ethics, it's like you know where to go, but you don't go there. You can halfway through, you cannot go sideways. And actually, often, you cause hurt to yourself and to others. But however, also Chinul, who is one of the great Korean teachers and the founder of our temple in the 12th century, there is this interesting view in the Mayana tradition, and that's what he says, like this is for the young monks. And he says, you should take the five or ten precepts and know them well and know when to keep them and when to dispense with them. And this is an interesting point. So you have this ethics, which is based on compassion, 
And in a way, for them, this is a reason. Because it is based on compassion, you have to know when to open the precept, when to close the precept. And one of the, and one of the famous stories about that is the story of the deer. You are, you are in the forest, and there is a deer running left, and there is a hunter who appears. And the hunter says, did you see the deer? Which way did it go? And you say, oh, he went right. And so in a way they say this, you open the precept because for a greater good you lie so that the hunter does not kill the deer. That's in a way the, the idea. Another idea is also in, in terms of not, in a way to apply the spirit of the precept more than in a way the letter of the precept. And you might have heard this, uh, I like this story very much, when you have two monks who are on the side of the river and there is a pretty lady also there. And the river, they could cross just about, but the pretty lady can't really cross because, you know, it's a bit too kind of wild and, and she's kind of, you know, hesitating. And so one of the monks say, well, I can carry you over. So one of the monks carries the pretty lady over the river and then the lady goes this way and then the two monks go that way to the monastery. And they walk and they walk. And after about an hour of walking, the monk, who did not carry the pretty lady, says to the other, how could you do this? It's so against the precept. You're not supposed to touch a woman. How could you do this? And the other monk says, well, I left her there. You're still carrying her. <laughs> and so again, I think it's important when we see, uh, look at ethic, which as meaning in our life, which is not just kind of, you know, all regulation for ancient time. I think, it's, does it make sense? Is it something I can apply? Is it something that makes me tense so I don't make a mistake? Or is it something which helps me in a way to open my heart, to kind of reflect? Personally, I see the precept as place of reflection. It makes us reflect on certain attitude, on certain way of doing things. And so what I'd like to do now is just kind of, um, kind of de describe to you some of these precepts, not the 58, <laughs> but just some of them which I would say are relevant to our life and also to show a little how they work. And so the first one, of course, this is a universal one, is refrain from taking life. Personally, I think it's also about not causing harm to anyone. But what is interesting, the way the it is explained, is that they go in quite great detail of do not, do not perform the act of killing. killing. Do, not do not cause someone else to do it. Do not kill in a roundabout way. Do not create the causes and condition for causing harm. Do not develop a means to cause harm. So in a way, because you could say it's easy, you know, not to kill anybody. Okay, I don't kill. But they're kind of looking in more than that. You know, it's kind of looking, I might not cause harm directly. Maybe you don't go around beating people. I presume not. 
But do you do things in such a way that somebody else is going to be very angry with somebody and being very aggressive and maybe can you know, beat them up? I mean, do you help resolve tension or do you aggravate tension? You kind of, kind of also create, you know, kind of making arms or whatever. It's kind of really looking into how do we cause arm and to really reflect on that. And then, of course, he goes on to say, it is a duty of the Bodhisattva to be compassionate toward others and to lead them to liberation. And I mean, if you kill them, you really can't lead them to liberation. <laughs> They're not there. So this is fairly kind of obvious there. Then, with refraining from telling lies, he goes in the same thing. Do not tell lies yourself. Do not cause someone else to do it. Do not do it in a roundabout way. Do not create the causes and conditions to do it. Do not develop a means to do it. And then there is more subtlety. Do not convey the impression that you saw something that you did not see or you did not see something that you saw through physical gestures or mental intention. So this is getting even more subtle because we might not lie outright but do we do it in a different way do we kind of lie in a way through our gesture or through maybe the way we think and it's really looking into the way how do we delude ourselves in a way how do we delude others although we still will say I never say a lie at the same time we have to be careful with this precept, because then we think, oh, I must always be honest. And I think, I mean, you can be honest, but at the same time, sometimes it's, it's, we have to be careful to move from honesty to be frank. I think we, often we think, you know, I must tell it like it is. And sometimes I think it's better to remain silent than telling like it is. It might not necessarily be the compassionate things to do. So again, to see, how do we do it? How do we do it or not do it? And what also, I think very much, the precepts are about what are the results of our words? What effects do they have? Then there is another one which I think is quite challenging. Because it says, refrain from praising yourself and slandering others. And generally, I would say, the main one of the main activities we have in speaking with other people. We don't put it this way, but when you gossip, what do you do? Generally, you kind of buff yourself a little up, and generally you put somebody down, either personally as a group. I think this is one of our favorite activity as a kind of, we like, you know, what's happening with them? Terrible, terrible, great, 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 you know? Look at us, we're doing okay, they're not doing okay. I mean. This is, actually, we do that. You know, when we do this kind of thing, we praise putting ourselves up, praising ourselves, and then putting others down. And in it, in the precept here, it says, as a bodhisattva, our task, our duty, is to take for, one for oneself the slander directed to others. Who in this room would be ready 
to take the slander directed to others. First, nobody generally wants the slander directed to oneself. All the more, we don't want those directed to others. But I think the present makes us reflect. I mean, would I be ready to do that? Would I be ready for my kind of uh, fame or my image to be a little kind of gray for the sake of somebody else? Would I be ready to do that? I think, you know, it's kind of questioning, you know, how selfless are we? How compassionate are we? The other thing it says in this one, it says, transfer whatever is unpleasant to yourself. And he takes us. <laughs> <laughs> and again, we generally we don't like, you know, what is unpleasant. And what is unpleasant of other people, of course we on top of it we don't want it, you know. You know, I mean we want to give them what is unpleasant on us, we're very happy to give it to others. But take the unpleasantness of others, we're not so keen, we're kind of not so ready to kind of consider it. So again, it's kind of looking how, yeah, how ready, how ready are we to, you know, take the suffering, <laughs> the pain of the world. And the last part of that precept is give whatever is good to others. <clears throat> And in a way, to asking us whatever is good with ourselves, can we share that with others instead of just wanting to keep it for ourselves? Then one of the precepts is care well for those who are sick. And in it he said one should care and provide for the sick as if they were the Buddha himself. So, you know, every time we are with someone who is ill, we should see, in a way, their Buddhahood in that moment. We should care for them as if it was a Buddha who was ill. So, again, opening to those who are in pain. Then there are two, two about anger, which I think kind of is relatively relevant in terms that this is an emotion I think a lot of us experience, I think, in our life. And I think they were experiencing it 2,500 years ago, also 1,500 years ago in China, and nowadays too, we experience anger. And so one of the precepts says, refrain from getting angry, do not strike others, do not take revenge. And so here it says, do not repay anger with anger, do not repay blow by blows, and also do not beat or scold the servants, because that would be abandoning a compassionate mind. And nowadays we don't have servants, but I think nowadays what we have is a service industry. You know, when you go to the post office, when you are at the supermarket counter, when somebody phones you on the phone to try to sell you some double glazing window, or when you have a problem with your computer and you try to find phone the help service, <laughs> what do you do? What do you do? Are you very serene? Are you very equanimous? If there is a long queue at the post office because a lady is chatting with the customer, <laughs> what do we do? Are we very quickly angry? Are we very quickly impatient? I think this is, to me, one of the characteristics 
of our life is impatient. We're very impatient, very irritable, and very easily people in the supermarket and the post office or on the phone, we can very quickly be quite angry with them. When actually, a lot of the time, it has nothing to do with them. They just, as they say generally, I'm just doing my job. And so, you know, it look, how are we with people in the service industry? And then there is another one. Refrain from being angry, treat well someone who asks for forgiveness. And it says, the duty of a bodhisattva is to be kind and to be compassionate and not to be quarrelsome. So a bodhisattva should not abuse living creatures nor vent his or her anger on an inanimate object. I like this one. (laughs) Because this is written in 5th century China. And so I can imagine a Chinese man or woman kind of, you know, hitting, I don't know, some kind of, you know, desk or some cart which is not working. And as 1,500 years later, we hit the car or we hit the computer or whatever. But it's the same. I mean, very much it's, it's the same. We kind of, you know, when something doesn't work, we hit it. I mean, it doesn't help very much. <laughs> and in a way, to look at that, to kind of look at the way, you know, we, when we're angry, of course, it's because there is fireness, but also often there is no wisdom, there is no compassion. There's no way to try to remember that. And also it goes, if somebody begs for forgiveness, if he, your anger is an appease, this is a very serious offense. And to me that was, was very interesting in Korea, because they had this, what for, was for us Westerner a very strange ritual. And this was a ritual of forgiveness. That if you made a mistake, the only thing you had to do was to go to the person, generally somebody a little higher up, and you just had to bow three times and say, I made a mistake, I made a mistake, I made a mistake. And that was it. Whatever you did, however bad it was, it was forgotten forever after. Nobody ever would mention it. And when I saw that in action, I was, it was interesting as Westerner, we, we first we had a great trouble doing it. And so sometimes Master Cousin would say, you know, to one of us, Westerner, American or whatever, and he would say, you know, you made a mistake, you did this the other day, I saw you. And the person would go in great spiel about, well, but you know, da 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 da, and kind of trying to rationalize why, da 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 da. And Master Kuzan would be sitting there, and, you th- and I could see that he was thinking, but if he just bowed three times, <laughs> said he made a mistake, it would be finished. <laughs> but it would go on and on and on. And in a way, it made me think that often in the West, we forgive, but we don't forget. Which means later on, we'll bring it back. On the, we'll say, oh, yes, I forgave gave you two years ago, but still, you know, I did not forget you did this. I'm, I might never forget it. 
So that was quite amazing. And I think it comes actually from this precept, the fact that if somebody acknowledges they made a mistake and asks for forgiveness, this is it. You accept it compassionately and then it's gone in a way. So, in a way, to see that these precepts are very much not fixed rule, nor judgment. They are not like a prison. They're not like a chain. But they're very much like an aspiration. They're like an intention. And that's why they t- they taken again and again, once a year, to remind themselves of what is it they aspire to. They aspire to live wisely. That we aspire to live compassionately. And that's why now I would like to talk about compassion, because I think, of course, when we sit in meditation, especially when we sit in this Zen style, which is quite stark, which is quite direct, just sitting here, asking, what is this? And then walking around, what is this? And this is it. And you might think, well, this is a little dry, a little cold. But actually, it is very much within an environment of compassion. That again and again, compassion would be stressed out in the environment, in the monastery, in many different ways. And so, you know, it, for me, I would say actually that the meditation is, and the ethics, of course, is what helps us to open the heart, is what helps us in a way to remove the obstacle for our compassion to arise and also to manifest. Because in a way, compassion is an innate response to suffering, is the ability to feel, to empathize, to respond, to connect and to open to others. So I would say, in a way, at the root of compassion, there is awareness. There is a recognition that I am alive and other people too are alive. And that as my life is precious to me, their life is precious to them. And to me, this is in a way, in order for you to be compassionate, you have to recognize that the other exists. And I would say that's why self-grasping is a great obstacle to compassion. Because if we're too locked within ourselves, it'll be very hard to see the other and to come out, to respond to the other. So I would say, in a way, the practice of meditation is a cultivation of other-centeredness. Instead of just being self-centered, in a way, there is this movement from self to other and then back to self. And, in a way, this is a continuous movement where we move to, in a way, having compassion for self, to compassion to other, and back and forth. Because we, too, are a human being. And we, too, have to have compassion for ourselves. But I would say in, t- in order to be compassionate in a real way, that is not just a feeling. Because you see, you could have a great feeling of compassion, but if it doesn't make a difference in the way you behave, then to me it would not have much point. You could, you could say, you know, may all beings be happy. And then if you're nasty to your neighbor, then I think it kind of you know, defeat a bit the purpose. So in a way, the compassion has to be lived. And in order to be lived, in a way, one of the important elements is that we are available to the other. That actually not only we recognize the other, 
we feel for their pain, but also we are available to them. We can move for them. We can activate ourselves for them. We can kind of do something. And so at that level, I think we have to be careful. Often we associate (laughs) compassion with what I would call heroic compassion. That feeling, I want to save the world. When I, when I was age 11, I wanted to save the world. Then I thought, oh, the best way to do that is to become president of the republic. Then I thought, this could be a bit hard. And then I kind of downgraded my kind of, you know, from a deputy to journalist and whatever. But in a way, in order to, to save the world, one has to kind of first to be compassionate to ourselves and then in a way to be compassionate in reality to what is around us. To me, compassion is in a way concentric circle that we're compassionate to ourselves, people around us, and then people further and further away as we encounter them. So in a way to be careful of this great kind of image of heroic compassion when often what is asked, actually, is very ordinary humdrum compassion. And I remember when my grandmother was still alive, one of the things I used to do was to play dominoes with her every afternoon. So my mother could kind of do something else. And so for an hour or two, I would play domino. And this was in the autumn. And in the autumn, leaves fall. And my grandma hated leaves on the patio. This is, she had something against it. And so you could not have even one leaf on the patio. She was very upset about it. So we are playing the domino, and then she would kind of get the look. And then I would look, and there was a few leaves. And then she would try to get up, but she could not really get up. So I would get up, sweep the leaves, and come back, play domino. Then the look again. And then, okay, okay, five leaves, get up, sweep, come back, the look, get up again. And the third time, as I was sweeping the leaves, I could see that sort kind of a rising. Maybe there could be something more heroic to do than, you know, continuously sweeping the leaves, two or three bigger leaves. And then suddenly I realized, in that moment, there was nothing better to do than to play domino and to sweep the leaves. That's all was required at that moment. Nothing else. And when I realized that, there was this incredible ease. And so I think we have to be careful of all the images we have of compassion and to really look around ourselves. Because I think it's the way we listen, the way we are with people. I think we, this is what is very important, to be aware in this ordinary way. And of course, to be aware also globally, but to kind of not forget one for the other. But one also has to be careful with compassion because I think sometimes there is this kind of nearly self-abnegation that we kind of compassionate, but possibly in a too much heroic, self-abnegating way, and then, in a way, we get too tired. 
because we can't. We can give, we can give, we can help, we can help. We can be compassionate up to a point. And then physically, mentally, emotionally, we, might, we have all of our limits. So I think we have to be careful when we... The Buddha was very clear that you had to have as much compassion for yourself as for others. Again, the middle way. That you could, of course, be heroic, but sometimes we cannot sustain it. So always to remember that, the idea of compassion is again to be aware. When can I really give and be there? And when can I, in a way, have to also take care of myself? So the two, it works again for sway. And also to see that often there is this idea that if we're compassionate, we're going to be taken advantage of. There is often this idea. Or that if we're compassionate, we're going to condone the action of the person. But to me, in a way, his compassion is seeing the humanity of the person, no matter what they have done. And when Stephen, uh, we used to live in England, not far from here, he used to go to the jail, which actually is just over, over there, just on the over, over side of the hill, there is a jail. And he, Stephen was a Buddhist chaplain. And he used to go, to go there once a, a week. And he used to meet all kinds of people were interested in meditation. People who were, had killed people, people who were kind of had been for bank robbery, people who were pedophile or whatever it was. He met all kinds of people. And in a way, he met them and he did not condone their action. But he could meet the person, meet the human, the, the, the human person and respond to their suffering, to their pain, and try in a way to to see if they could kind of break through the pattern that in a way brought them to jail. So we need to be careful the fact that that we be careful when we're compassionate, we open to the human being. But does it mean that we condone what they do when we're still available to them? Another thing sometimes that can happen with compassion is that we can feel overwhelmed by the suffering especially if we look at the news or if we're really interested in social work and then you see all the suffering in the world and you think, you kind of feel like kind of paralyzed. You know, how can I do anything? And so I think, again, to, to be careful of not seeing the totality of it. You know, being open to the totality but seeing that for yourself there is only a little that you can do. But of course, to be aware of the suffering will make one sad. That, I think, is unavoidable. With compassion, there is a little that feeling of sadness, that wanting to succor, but also that sadness of that suffering. And personally, I really experienced that when I was uh, re- regularly go to South Africa. And last time, we were asked to visit uh, a family in a hut. It's, this is a Zulu village, and they're very poor the level of AIDS is very big and a lot of orphans. And we already were supporting one family of orphans and they said, you know, there is this these young children and the family is very poor. Please come and see them. With the idea that if you see them, then of course you will support them. So we said, of course, we'll go and see them. And we go into the hut and, I mean, we've been in hut before, but this one, I'd never seen such a bare one before. There was nothing, nothing whatsoever. There was just a broken pot, and there was these two children all ragged and 
covered in scabies, and there was a, a grandmother who looked extremely depressed. And I mean, it was really, you kind of, when you sat there, you felt hopelessness. You really felt hopelessness. This grandmother and these two children, about four and five, and you kind of felt. And being in that hut, I felt so sad because I realized they're hopeless and there are so many families in the world who are just like them, without any resources and also who are hopeless in a way because they had no food. They, they had to beg already in these poor villages. So of course, we say, of course we will help them and we'll give food for the food and for, give money for the food and various things. <laughs> and then later we were sent... Um, a photo of them. I mean, and of course they were transformed in a way because the little kids were not boys but were girls and uh, you know, they were clean and they had their school uniforms so now they could go to school. The grandmother now could have felt that there was some hope so she looked a little brighter and less depressed and instead of looking 70, she looked 55 and kind of uh, ready to kind of engage. But at the same time, so whenever I think of them, of course, I'm happy that we can help them in our small ways. And at the same time, I am sad. Because it's not just them, there is so many in the world. But I think, in a way, each of us has to try to do what we can whenever we encounter people who need our compassion. But at the same time, we have to be very careful that the compassion and the sadness then doesn't feed into what I call our poor me syndrome. The world is a terrible place. This is awful. This is meaningless. We have to be very careful with compassion. That sometimes we go to the sadness and, and then it, it turns into something which can be very negative. And that's why I think where equanimity then is very essential with compassion to balance out that feeling of compassion which is often accompanied by sadness. And I like to read this quote because I think it's, a, it's very important in terms of compassion. This is from uh, the Mayana tradition, in the Zen tradition. In the practice of compassion, a bodhisattva should be detached. He should practice compassion without regard to appearance, without regard to sound, to odor, to touch, to flavor, or any quality. And I think what, in a way, this is quite an um, ultimate compassion. But I think sometimes compassion asks that of us, to go beyond, in a way, what we like to be compassionate to. But to me, in a way, at the root of compassion, there is in a way, the way we look at people, the way we are with people, the way we consider them in the minute we encounter them, in whatever kind of uh, where we are. Recently, I read this book, which is, ah, it really breaks your heart. It's a, I don't know if it exists in English. It's a book I read in French, but it was written in Russian by a young Spanish boy who was born in Russia from a Spanish mother and born with cerebral palsy. 
And it's a really strange story. The grandfather was kind of a kind of a communist cadre in an underground thing in uh, Spain, and that's where <coughs> she had the, the daughter had the child there. But then they took the child away, and they told the mother he died. Though they kept keeping him in various foyers, in various places, and he would be moved around. And he was, you know, he, he had barely hands and barely f uh, legs, and he could not move. And so he goes from foyer to foyer where there is all these other kids, just like him, with cerebral palsy and heavy dis disablement. And he says what is the most terrible thing was the look the people gave them. A lot of the time worked with them as non-human. And that for them, they noticed people who were human were the people who could walk. So even if you were disabled, if you could walk, you were human. But if you could not walk, they did not see you as human. He could say that you could, they could see the look people would have toward them. And, and those kids were so clever, so intelligent, and they would just be left to die after a certain age. And so it's when you realize that compassion is not only what you do for others, but it's also the look you have toward others, how you consider them in the first instance. You meet them, you encounter them. And so in a way to be careful, I would say what would hamper that compassion, that compassionate look, that human look, would be that self-grasping or that cultural grasping. And uh, last year, or the year before, I was in Korea for a women's conference. And in the evening, they entertained us. This is very Korean. You, know, you have to be entertained. Even though it's Buddhist and you know, you're not supposed to listen to music and all that, we had uh, lots of entertainment, musical entertainment. And one night, there was this amazing uh, concert, in a way, and it was nuns, ten nuns, who were singing a common Korean song, but at the same time they were singing it with their voice. They were also doing it with sign language. And at the end of the song, which was very beautiful, the nun who had formed the nun to learn the sign language said to the people, I was very struck by what she said, because there was this huge audience of... Uh, Korean lay people. And she said, look, you know, this is sign language. This belongs to the deaf people. And it's very important <coughs> to be compassionate to the deaf people, to be aware that they exist, to be aware that they're human, to be aware that you want to do something for them, you want to be compassionate, you want to feel for them, you want to be there for them. And I think what she was trying to to do, to reach out, is so that all of these people were Buddhist, and also they take the Bodhisattva precept. In the Korean culture, there is a strong, I mean, now it's changing, but up to recently there was a strong feeling that if you were disabled, in a way it was your fault. And then, you know, you would be kind of put on your side. It would be kind of like a, a black mark against you, like a kind of a black sin. And then you would kind of be shunned aside and not really considered human. And I thought it was beautiful that she was saying, look, you know, they exist. 
you have you know to be there for them you have to see them as human being and to me this is very much the kind of what compassion is asking us is to see the other so that's what I wanted to say thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate